I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Um, I think the next five weeks are going to be really helpful and important for us as a church. Um, we're going to do some heavy lifting in here over the next five weeks. Um, it's going to be a little bit of mental sweat. And uh, I, I had one of my favorite professors, uh, Dr. Bob Evans, not the restaurant guy and up in uh, wherever, Missouri, I guess. But uh, Dr. Bob Evans was a professor at OBU and, and impacted my life. And, and uh, he would always uh, say in our, in our theology classes, boys, it's time for some mental sweat. And uh, we'd have to wrestle with things that were hard to understand. And, and um, you know, um, I'm excited about um, tackling this topic. Um, and uh, if you have your Bibles, well, let's pray together. Or no, Joe already prayed. We were good. We're, we're prayed up. So, sorry, he's that preacher in me. I've right, got to pray. Can't, gotta, but it's good. We always need to pray. Lord, help us. Um, Psalm 19. I want you to turn there. And... Um, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. I want us to read, and I want us to, I'm reading from the ESV version uh, in Psalm 19, but let's, let's, let's think about this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Now, is that, is that true? I mean, is it true to understand that, that the law of the Lord, it revives our soul? That, that the testimony of the Lord is true. It makes wise the simple. That, that the precepts of the Lord are right and it, and it rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord, it, it's pure, it's, it enlightens your eyes. That the fear of the Lord, it's clean. It's, um, it endures forever. I mean, think about that. The, the rules of the Lord. Now, now, let's hear that. The rules of the Lord, it's, they're, they're true. And they're righteous altogether. That, that they are to be desired more than gold. I mean, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And then the psalmist says, moreover, so he's emphasizing this, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. You know, I, I, uh, there's a study 
a Barna study that just came out in 2016. And it was really interesting. It's called The Bible in America. You could Google that. We're, Google, we're all about Google tonight, okay? Yeah, you could Google that and download that. It's, uh, it, you could buy it. It's a, it's a Barna study. If you know Barna, it's a sociologist group, and, and they do incredible sociological studies. But they, uh, they've got some incredible statistics in there. It's so much more than, than we're going to unpack tonight. But, uh, but um, uh, it's, it's incredible research about wh where is the Bible? What's the view of the Bible in America? And what's interesting about this study in um, there's a growing skepticism of the Bible in our culture. That from, from 2011, when they started this study, uh, they have discovered that 10% of the United States, people in the United States, were skeptical of the Bible. 10% in 2011. By 2016, it had grown to 22%. So, so I, statistically, that's pretty amazing. When you think about that rate of growth in, a, in, in the United States of America, uh, that, 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 much, that, that skepticism is growing. And we're seeing this impact all kinds of churches. You know, there, there's another stat I thought that was really interesting. Um, um, I'm not going to go through all these because it's just, it's data, and that's that causes you to gloss over sometimes. But but uh, the, he lists the the top Bible-minded cities in the United States of America, and and then the least Bible-minded cities. Uh, um, someone take a guess of where Tulsa is. What do you think Tulsa is? Do you think it's in the top fifty? Yeah. Okay. It is. It is in the top fifty. Uh, are we more Bible-minded than Oklahoma City? You think so? In Tulsa, is it is it in general? Nope, we're not. According to him, I, it's not my my research. I didn't do it. Uh, uh, we got some work to do. Uh, this is interesting. Tulsa is 39th uh, in the United States of America. Oklahoma City was 14th. We hate losing to Oklahoma City, but we're way behind, okay? Uh, the top Bible-minded cities in America, number, uh, number five is the Tri-Cities in Tennessee. Number four is Shreveport, Louisiana. Number three is Roanoke, Lynchburg, Virginia. Number two is Birmingham, Anniston, Alabama. Are you kidding me? Alabama is, bi they're not Bible-minded. Did you see that game? Uh, uh, well, I guess the quarterback is, or the, the new quarterback at Alabama, I guess. Um, but number one is Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's the most Bible-minded. The least Bible-minded city in cities are all in the Northeast. If it, that may not surprise you. But, um, but the, the least Bible-minded city in the United States is Albany uh, and Troy, New York. And I don't know. There's another city in there, Schenectady or something. I don't know how to say it. Whatever. Yeah, that place. So... They obviously need Jesus if you're going to name your city like that. But, um, but it's, it's just interesting. Also, uh, in, this, in this study, it shows a generation gap that uh, the millennials, which is the, the uh, youngest generation, they, well, they, they studied some teenagers as well, which are non-millennials, but um, they're less Bible-minded than 
than the older generation. So you play that out. Uh, we're moving further and further away from trusting God's word. And, and you know, you're seeing, uh, I, I mentioned a statistic on Sunday that, um, you know, there's a part in this study that says 64% of pastors believe that a systematic study of scripture is foundational for spiritual development, which means there's a growing number of pastors who don't believe that the Bible is critical for spiritual development. So this is the world we live in. This is the battle we're called to run into. Now, um, it's interesting that the, we have also, this study articulates that there's, a, there's a, a, a different moral code that is developing. Uh, it, the, the moral, there, there's more of a subjective moral code developing in our culture. Now, by that means, like, if, if you believe the Bible, if, we, if you embrace the teachings of Scripture, that becomes a moral code that, develop, that, that you base your moral choices on. But, but in our culture, we're seeing more of a subjective moral code, meaning that um, people are, whatever's good for you, that's okay. Whatever's good for you, it's, it's a subjective moral code. That, that it's, there's no basis, there's no foundation. Now, for us, uh, we, we, we want to do something about that in the life of our church, that we want to come back to, what, what does the Bible say? Do we believe it? Do we believe what we just read in Psalm 19, that, that God's word is true? That, that understanding his precepts are, it gives light to our eyes. It gives us a basis to, to live by. It's, um, uh, you know, another thing in, the, in, this, in this study, it talks about the digital access to the Bible. That, that's one of the positives in our culture, that, that, that there is so much digital access now. Uh, there was a statistic there that, that in a one-month period, um, people pulled up a half a billion passages of Scripture Amen. in a month period. Because the Bible app, how many of you have the Bible app on your phone? Okay, See, I use it all the time. I use it daily. And, and so it's interesting that in a day that... There is so much access to Scripture, especially in America, that we're becoming less and less confident in the Scriptures. And, um, and I think it's just an interesting reality. So where we're going over the next five weeks is we're going we're gonna to dis- turn our attention to the reliability of the Scriptures, and I want to tell you where we are, where we teach, where your pastors are, where, where our church's biblical foundation is. And if you have your notes, um, the, these um, are in here. You're, I like blanks more than Rob likes blanks, but we, we're compromising. And uh, so I'm trying to let this young theologian who's smarter than me, I'm trying to influence him with blanks because I'm... I'm older, and I don't like to change from my, I'm old school. No school like the old school, Rob. No, I'm just kidding. Love it. But I like my blanks. So point number one is this. Well, first of all, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Let's look at this passage. I love this. Paul is writing to Timothy. 
What is is Timothy is this young up-and-coming pastor that Paul is investing in. Paul understands, I've got to pass the torch. You know, this is something that we've got to realize for us. Is we're, all of us have a call and a responsibility to pass the torch. Do you know how irresponsible it would be for us as a church to go, you know what? Forget all those young people, dang it. They're stupid. We'll let them have I'm going to be dead anyway. I'm going to be in heaven, so I don't care. You know how irresponsible that is. You know how unbiblical that is. Amen. That we are called to, we, we have a responsibility to pass on our faith to the next generation. Amen. And we must be a church that absolutely embraces that call. And that's what Paul was doing to Timothy. And what does he say to him? But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. So we see, you know, this is a passage Paul's probably referring to the, the, the people in Timothy's life, his, his, his uh, spiritual influencers. He's referring to himself. That, that look, you have learned this from, from teachers, which indicates a very clear understanding that, uh, that these teachers are present in his life. And we've got to be present in the lives of those that we're passing on our faith to. We've learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you see this? This is the word of God. This is, this is what God has given us to, to make him wise in salvation. We need to be a people that are wise in salvation through faith, right, in Christ Jesus. Then he writes the famous passage, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We know this is what God's word says, that, that, that God's word equips us. It, 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 it's profitable for, our, for us. It, it's, it reproofs us. It corrects us. And, and we've got to allow God's word to speak and to, and to correct our thinking. Because we all have a tendency, like Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, we all have a tendency to go our own way. And we're not to go our own way. We're to, go, we're to follow the Lord. We're to follow what he has said. And this is our call. And, and when we do this, we are, we are complete we are equipped for every good work. So in a culture that is moving further and further away from Scripture, I want us to remember that we are already equipped for that work. That we are, all, we are already equipped to pass on our faith to the next generation. We are already equipped to raise up a next generation to love the Lord and honor him and walk with him. We're already we're equipped. We just have to follow his word. Now, number one there, we believe the Bible is God's word and has the ultimate authority for our beliefs and our practices. So we, have, we as a church have, have come to the point where we said, okay, we understand God's word as authoritative. 
Meaning, God, you have spoken and you are the authority in our lives. And, and you have authority in our beliefs. And you'll hear me say time and time again that, that whenever I, hold a, I discover a belief that is contrary to the word of God, I am compelled to change my belief to line up with God's word. Because we all, we all hold beliefs that we discover, wait a minute, that's tradition. That's not found in scripture. And that's a bummer when, when you have those. Because there are some beliefs that we hold that we're really passionate about. It's like, I, I, I can't, I heard this illustration once and I'm just going to make it up now because most preachers do that anyway. Um, but it was uh, this story about a lady that cut the edges off the turkey or something and, and, and she kept cutting them off because her mom did it. And, and, and she said, Mom, well, they said, why are you doing that? Well, my mom did it. And she goes, Mom, why do we do that? She goes, because my pan was too short. It wouldn't fit in there. That's why I did it. Uh, something like that. But, but sometimes we hold beliefs that are, that, that are not biblical. And so let's be honest. And let's allow God's word to lead us and to speak and that when we find a belief that we hold that is contrary to Scripture, we're compelled to change our beliefs to line up with what the Bible says. And, and I want us to be good at that in the way we govern ourselves, in the decisions we make, in the, in the, the way we treat one another, in the, in the way we live our lives. Uh, our practices are the same way. That whenever we discover a practice that sometimes we hold dearly to, that, that is Contrary to Scripture, we're compelled to, to change our practices to line up with Scripture. This is who we have decided that we're going to be. And in a culture that's moving further and further away from the Lord, and, and in a culture where it's becoming politically incorrect to hold to some of these beliefs, where we have school counselors that will say, hey, you know what? You should update your, your position on things because culture has changed. No, the Bible will not allow us to do that. And we will have to face the ramifications of that. And so that's just where we have to be. Now, point number two, we study the Bible to know God and his truth and to find direct application into our lives. That, that when we study the Bible, we are coming together saying, God, this is how you've revealed yourself. You have communicated who you are through your word. And so we understand the Bible to be a, a, it's a way, when we study the scripture, it's a way to know God. And when we can come to know him through the study of his word. Uh, also his truth, because there is truth. And there is right and there is wrong in the world. And we live in this subjective world that says, no, 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 it's however you feel. But, but that's not true. It's interesting right now on CNN, uh, there is a commercial that is, is saying, this is an apple. And some people will say it's not an apple, but it's an apple. And it's a whole really good statement on truth, on people that say it's not an apple are wrong because it's an apple. 
And what's interesting, they'll make that claim, but then they'll say, oh, well, this is a, they're uncomfortable with the idea that this is a man. Oh, but he thinks he's a woman, but it's a man. They, they don't, they're like, oh, no, 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 that's different. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting to me. Because they're picking and choosing this subjective idea of gender versus, you know, gender's different. So it's interesting to me. That that's the world we're living in. Coexist. Yeah, coexist, that whole idea. That, but, but we study the Bible to know God, to know his truth. And God has spoken about his truth. We, we, uh, we are able to study the Bible and find direct application to our lives. The Bible is incredibly relevant. You know, it's like the pressure that I feel sometimes as a preacher to be entertaining and to be relevant. You know, and, and I, I, I battle that because, you know what, I'm pastoring among celebrity pastors. Tulsa is this celebrity pastor environment. And, and, you know, there are people that will come to our church and go, you know what, I just like that guy better than you. He's more, he's funnier or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Okay, he is. You're better or whatever. But you resist, you, you feel sometimes that temptation to be relevant. But the reality is my job as a pastor is just to deliver the truth. And, and yeah, I should not, I should prepare and I should, you know, you know, not like put everybody to sleep, you know, I, I'm, I'm key, I keep my mother-in-law awake, which is a, a feat, I think, you know, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Margaret. Uh, yeah, I, I love it because Dr. Jordan was her pastor um, and she always fell asleep when he preached and she always says to him, I never fall asleep when Chris preaches. I'm like, it's great. I love it. She's a great, she's my favorite mother-in-law in the whole world. Um, so, but we find direct application to our lives. Third thing, last thing, and then I need to hand it over. We have a strong conviction in biblical authority, and this, this a strong conviction in biblical authority moves us to understand the message of Scripture. And, and, and I want us to be faithful to understand the message of Scripture. We also, when we understand the message, we'll be moved to obey the message. And without apology, we are a group of people who have committed to hold one another accountable to obey the Scriptures. In a culture that says, hey, you know, you don't submit to anybody. You don't, you, you, we're not obeying somebody, some authority. No, we, we obey the message of Scripture. We're compelled to. And when we do that, we will fulfill the calling of Scripture. And so a strong, biblical conviction, a strong conviction in biblical authority moves us to understand the message of Scripture, obey the message of Scripture, and then fulfill the calling of Scripture. And this is my prayer. And this is why over the next five weeks, um, we are going to do some heavy lifting. So our goal is not to get up and go like, okay, we're going to entertain you and, you know, uh, all those things. That was the wave, by the way. I learned that in the eighth grade. I grew up in the breakdancing. You remember that, Rob? Did you ever breakdance? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, but um, uh, so let's roll up our sleeves a little bit. 
And let's, uh, let's allow the Lord to speak. Rob, you're up. Well, good evening. We, um, can you, do you know how to turn this up a little bit? I'm not as loud as. I'll stop there. <laughs> um, so we are going to have a, a good time this uh, study. I, I love I love the winter. I love not not the winter itself, but I love the winter season where we get to do these special uh, little studies where we break off. Um, and for me, it's fun, you know, in two ways. One is to be able to you know, work with Chris as we've been pouring over these ideas for months now. Um, and, and I love that collaboration. I love working together with him. And we, we, we bring different things to the table. And I love that relationship that we have. We sharpen one another. But also, um, it's such a beautiful time for us to just kind of pause and really devote our hearts and our minds to something that's not normal. Um, I believe we should be in the scripture every day. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, get one. Um, there's, there's, there's so much power in, in being involved in reading the word for yourself every single day, but also um, being able to be a part of a community that stops and says, hey, together collectively, let's wrestle through this. Let's wrestle through um, what this means. So um, I really want us to have in our minds, Chris has already opened with it, but the idea here in, in Timothy where it says in verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof. Um, so the idea here, I want to unpack just a little bit. So you see it says breathed out by God. That, I don't know if you have a study Bible. It may have some, some content here, some commentary at the bottom. Um, if you do, you can look at that later. But I want to draw your attention to, to that word here. Uh, in the Greek, it's theonophotus. Uh, I can't say it very well. Um, but basically, it's, scholars argue about these things all the time, but most scholars agree that Paul coined this phrase. It's taking the idea of God and the breath of God, putting those together to say that Scripture is a byproduct of God breathing, of God speaking. And so we'll look at this a little bit, but I want you to commit this verse to memory. If you don't have it already committed to memory, because it will be important for us as Christians to look at Scripture from that perspective as if it is actually breathed out by God. So we'll look at this here. This is our, our plan. I don't know what you turned up, but it didn't make it louder. It just made noise. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> this is our roadmap. Um, and so, I may go over here. The, our roadmap here is, whatever you did there turned off the screens. <laughs> check one, two, check. All right, sorry guys, we're, uh, we're doing some extra stuff here. Check, 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 check. One two 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 three four five six seven eight. I figured it out, but I need that back. <laughs> okay. 
sorry guys. This isn't our main job. <laughs> but I'm pretty good at figuring things out. <laughs> All right, back to my other job. This is this is our roadmap. Um, so we're going to look at these. These are our five weeks. So we're going to do origin tonight. Then we're going to look at next week history, and then we're going to take a look at canon and reliability. And then the fifth week, we're going to combine two things, interpretation and authority. You might ask, what does, what, what does interpretation have to do with this? Isn't interpretation kind of up to the reader? Um, well, no, absolutely not. Uh, and we'll look at what that, what that means. And a big part of our culture has to do with how we interpret this issue right here of authority. So um, when, we, when we get into this topic of authority, I want, I want you guys to answer this question. First off, I want a quick response for who is God? What is God? When you think of God, we're all Christians, so we have a, you know, an idea of who God is. But, but when you think of God, just, get, just throw a couple things out. What do you think of when you think of God? Okay, creator, that's great. Okay, perfect. So God is, so he is the creator, okay. Okay, and sustainer, so he didn't just do it and walk away, he's sustaining it. I think I got it. Thanks, bud. Um, he's, he, he also sustains it. I love that. You know what? It's, uh, it's really interesting when you look at the history of philosophy and science, um, even a lot of good Christians, solid Christians started to look at the universe and say, you know what, maybe God's not involved as much as he used to be. Ugh. No, 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 no. Okay, so I love that. Creator, sustainer, what else? Okay, so Father, oh, that's a, that's a good one. Interesting. Okay, and so that can be a, you know, that can take on some good things, and it also can take on some bad things, right? Um, what are some risks here with seeing God as our Father? Are there any risks involved in that? If you had a bad father, huh? That would that would that would be that'd be a bad deal, wouldn't it? Because now you've got that tainted view of what God is and how God would operate as the Father. And there's all sorts of analogies in the Scripture of God being the Father, God being a good father. The Father longs to give their children good gifts, right? You see, you see all these ideas. Uh, okay, so there's a lot that goes on here. What else? What else? When you think of God, what else do you think of? Okay, omniscient, so we can get into the characteristics. Savior, I love that. That's great. Um, what a, Eternal, perfect. So he doesn't have a beginning, right? He's always existed. That's great. Holy, ooh, I'm going to write that one down. Not that the others weren't worth writing down, I just couldn't spell them. Okay, so that's, those are great things to think of. Ooh. This is where I'm trying to lead us. But I like all of these because these mean something. Okay, so if he's the supreme authority, let's just go to the right here. Okay. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. He, all truth comes from him, right? He's the source of truth. Excellent. Boy, we could spend, excuse me? He is the truth. Excellent. There's a lot that could go into any one of these, and, and all the other things that got thrown out were great, too. 
But when we start to think about that he is the source of truth and he is supreme, he has supreme authority, that means something. Do you know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive? You ever thought about that? What's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive? Descriptive, I can describe something to you and you can take it or leave it. Prescriptive means I'm telling you and you ought to follow my instructions. When the doctor prescribes you something, <laughs> it would be in your best interest to follow their instructions, right? So when we look at the Bible, we have two ways to look at it. Is it simply descriptive, which are a lot of liberal scholars, a lot of liberal theologians would look at it and say, this is descriptive. It describes some things, but it doesn't really have power as a prescriptive document. Keep that distinction in your minds. That's very, very important as we look at this. But when we think of God as the ultimate authority, we have to understand that he is able from that authority to prescribe something to us. And he does. There's a lot. So let's go ahead and jump in. Week one, origin. So I want to watch this video real quick. And I want you guys to think through this a little bit. This is something that was put together by Ligonier. They went out and did some street surveys, similar to the Barner Research Group. Um, so Pay attention to this, and I want to ask you a couple questions after we watch it. Do you consider yourself a Christian? I do. Oh, yes, I am. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was raised in Christianity. Do you believe you're going to heaven? Oh, I don't know. That's not up to me. <laughs> I do my best. Do you believe that you're going to heaven? Um, I can't say if I am or I, I'm not. I'd like to think so. <laughs> yes, I do. Well, I'm hoping for that, yes. Um, hopefully. How good would you have to feel Um, yeah, I don't know. I believe that there's steps, though, to get there. Do you believe that you contribute anything to your going to heaven? Yeah. Yeah, I try to make sure at least, uh, I try to make sure that I make some kind of an impact on someone every day. How would you react if I were to tell you that your salvation doesn't depend on your works, it depends on what Christ has already done? Well, I can agree with that, but it also depends on how you live your life and you, you follow what God's guidelines are. Do you believe that the Bible is God's work? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, I do. I believe that there's some aspects of the Bible that are um, aligned with God's Word and other um, sacred literature as well. Do you think that there perhaps could be mistakes in the Bible? Well, I think if the part of the Bible is wrong, all of it's wrong. People transcribing it throughout the throughout all the decades and whatnot, I can see that happening. I think everything could possibly have a mistake. It's what you believe and your faith. I haven't found any yet. I've read a lot of, you know, sacred texts and literatures and um, from all different religions because I'm kind of fascinated with that and I don't consider myself to be in one particular religion. Um, so I just think if you really read them in a roundabout way, they're all saying the same thing. How often do you attend church? Every week. A few times a month, a couple of times a month. Three or two Sundays a month. About two to three times a month. Do you believe that church membership is important? Because I believe uh, that like we're all really one church and that I don't need to be a member of any specific uh, organization. Do you believe that man is basically good by nature? Yes. 
Yes, I do. I think we can be. Well, I'd like to say yes to that. <laughs> yeah, by nature, they are supposedly in the Bible. You was all deemed good until, you know, some people got corrupt. We have the opportunity to be good. It's a God-given trait. We are created by God, and we as humans are gods. There are evil and good, you know, and um, we just have to get all on the right path. I truly believe that if man was left to himself, if good things were happen, would happen, uh, I kind of doubt that. Interesting. So what do you guys think? Anything stick out to you? I, I, let me frame this. What was their perspective uh, on the word, on the Bible? Okay, yeah. But what, what did they claim? Many of them claimed right away. What did they claim? That they were Christians. So this wasn't just an isolated group of folks who were, uh, you know, atheists, and they said, you know, I've got some weird views here. These are people claiming to have either been raised in or are currently in, in, in Christianity, attending church quite regularly. Okay, so what was their view of the word? There's a different, there was a lot, they weren't all the same. What were some of them that stuck out to you? What were some views that you, you thought were interesting? Okay, yeah, some of it's true, some of, most of it isn't, right? Or, you know, that ladies, he's kind of my favorite. I, I, re, I read all sacred scriptures, and I believe they're all basically saying the same thing. Okay, so it'd be really easy for us to be arrogant and um, beat her up. She's, she's lost. She, she is. She's off. Um, I want to call to your attention as we get into this. I want to deconstruct a couple of these views. But before we do this, I want to preface with, um, have you ever read Jude verse 22? There's only one chapter of Jude. But have you ever read Jude 22? It says, and have mercy on those who doubt. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to include have mercy on those who are confused. Because what we have to do is as... as bearers of the truth. It's not something that we have discovered for ourselves. It's not on our own intellect. It's not our own power that we come and share this truth with the world. We do it because God himself has revealed it to us. We are passive in this to a large degree. He reveals to us his truth. And we're only able to have mercy on those who doubt if we see ourselves in that humble light. You ever think about pride? And C.S. Lewis has great analogies on pride. But one of his thoughts was, he says, you know, pride is not about having good things or knowing good things or being smart or being good looking. It's about being smarter than, being better looking than, or having more than. That's always the pride issue, right? And so we, as we start this study, part of what we want to do is we want to equip. We want to equip believers, not that you're not, but we want to continue to work on equipping believers to share our faith in charity and with conviction, right? Charity means with love. It doesn't mean giving money away. It means with love. So we have to start with humility. But let's, let's talk about that lady. Okay, so she claimed to have read lots of sacred scriptures. So she claims to be well-versed well in lots of different options. Um, her assertion was that she believed that the scriptures, the Bible, is what? part? Did you catch what she said? Part of God's word. So she, so she makes this distinction, and we've got to watch it. She makes this distinction. She's, so she says, if we had a Venn diagram, <laughs> right, and where is God's word? Well, it's kind of 
here, whatever, okay, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but she's kind of like the Bible is just one element in, in this. Does that make sense? And we could have some other sacred text over here. We could have the Book of Mormon over here, right? It's just one piece of, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you could, you could say any of these sacred, uh, sacred literatures are pieces of the Word of God. And so that's her first assertion. Her second assertion um, was, was that they're all basically saying the same thing. Did you catch that? She said, in a roundabout way, they're all saying the same thing. Um, okay, so we would be nice to her, but we would ask the question, can you, can you clearly tell me in what ways they say the same thing? Because they do not say the same thing. They're very contradictory. So let's just take one. Um, the Bible says something specifically about Jesus, all right? Uh, the Mormons in their sacred literature says something explicitly about Jesus. Anyone know what that explicit difference is? Uh, I could, uh, one. Okay, so yeah, maybe. But explicitly about Jesus, what do the Mormons believe? Okay, yeah, that's a big, that's a big problem. But they do not believe that he is co-eternal with God, that he is himself God. They would agree with the Arians in the 300s who says that God the Father is God, and he created Jesus first. And then through Jesus, everything else was created. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe the same thing. So in a roundabout way, they're all saying about the same thing, right? No. What do we do with salvation? Okay, the Quran, Islam. How, do you, how are you saved? Judaism. This hurts a little bit because we come from that vein. But Judaism is not the same faith as Christianity. How are you saved in Judaism? Do, doing the work. How are you saved in Christianity? By the grace of Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ. So in a roundabout way, they're not saying the same thing at all, right? So but we, would, we could explicitly ask, in what ways are they saying the same thing? But did you catch that this gentleman, who's still on the screen, what did he say regarding salvation? Will you make it to heaven? What do you believe? What, you know, what was his answer? Anyone remember? Yes. He says, he goes, I can agree with that. But also, it depends on how you do, what you do with your life, whether you, you know, live by God's laws, basically, right? Is that the truth? Is it, is it, is it if we do some and then God does the rest? I'm not going to get heavy in theology here, but we would call that the difference between monergism and synergism. Monergism is it's a totally, salvation is a total work of God. Synergism is like, we help God out. We reject that. We reject that. Um, God does it, and if he doesn't do it, it won't happen. And the only thing that we bring is a debt. The scriptures are really clear about that. All right, so that's, that's our preface, but this, these are people. This was, this was made like last year. So these are the types of people that we're going to be engaging in. And so what we want to do is we want to start to look at the origin of scripture, and obviously we're going to move through, and we're going to have the theme of authority, and reliability, that's going to be a big theme that we're going to try to unpack through the next five weeks. So what is revelation? So we talk about this being revelation, all right? So the Bible as special revelation. Uh, think of it like this. Imagine that I had two people. Okay, you see, 
Um, we have a man and a woman st standing side by side. Okay, so I've got a word box right there uh, that he, this man may say something, okay? But until he speaks, what he has has not been revealed, okay? But he may say, hey, I like vanilla. He has revealed that to this lady, okay? Well, before that, she may have thoughts about whether or not he likes vanilla, but until he reveals that, it could go either way, correct? Uh, how about, how about when, when we're first dating and we're trying to learn, you know, about the person we're interested in? We're like, right, taking notes. You know, you want to know everything about them. And it's unless they tell us, it's going to be pretty hard for us to figure some of these things out, right? And that's where there's self-revelation involved in that. But when we talk about revelation, there, there's, an, there's an instance here of there can be some thoughts, some misconceptions, but revelation is an actual direct speaking, a communication, a clarifying, okay? So maybe this lady has some thoughts. Let's move on from she's not thinking about this man, but maybe she's thinking about creation, okay? Has anyone looked at creation and had some thoughts about creation that were wrong? Surely, Right? Okay, evolution, that's, that's great. There's lots of them. There's lots of people who, who, even today, would worship creation itself. We see, creation is God, Mother Earth. So there's thoughts, there's things that happen, okay? So, but if we just looked at creation, and the scripture tells us that we can look at creation, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, all that, we can start to understand something, right? And we call that general revelation. God has revealed parts of himself to us, and therefore, this lady could think, yes, God exists. Okay, what is the limitation of general revelation? Um, what do we not find out by looking at nature? Some really important things that we can't find out just by looking at nature. What, can, can anyone, can anyone, um, okay, perfect, absolutely. So we don't have it, we don't have it on our list, but I did hear someone throw it out. But lots of these things we're going to kind of miss. Now, maybe, maybe we can learn that God is the creator. And there's lots of worldviews and religions that look at nature and say, yeah, there's probably someone who made this, okay? But very far-fetched to start talking about, is he my father? And does he have a fatherly relationship with me? Is he going to save me? Uh, is he holy? How am I going to find that out? You know, it's been said, nature is, 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 is tooth and claw, right? There's a lot of bad stuff that happens in nature, lots of suffering. Is he the supreme authority? Is he the, is he the source of all truth? We're not going to find those things out just by general revelation alone. And we have special or specific revelation that then leads us into those other things. So let's take a look at inspiration. So inspiration is like revelation in that it is a superhuman influence upon the particular person selected to be the organ of the divine mind. This is a guy writing in the 1800s, okay? So his words are a little hard for us to shake through. But I want you to think about this. Okay, we got the Bible, we've got the text, all right? Well, what does it mean for us to say that that is inspired? Because there's also a human author in this, isn't there? There were humans who wrote this stuff down. So how does that work? Well, inspiration is that superhuman influence. There's something that is being communicated through that human author, but it started in the divine mind. Do you get that? So when we think of inspiration, we're not just thinking of some person who had some ideas and they were inspired to write them down. That's not what we're talking about when we say inspiration. We're also not uh, thinking that these human authors were just uh, secretaries. 
you know, just writing stuff down as God took over their mind and hijacked them. That's not inspiration either. And we'll talk a little bit more about what inspiration is. But in your mind, get this thought. that inspiration is like revelation, okay? So something has been revealed. So the human authors had something revealed to them, all right? It wasn't something that they made up on their own. It was something that was revealed to them. And they were then uh, influenced in a way that we don't really understand and we can't really define. But what we're left with is that this is a both and. Inspired, okay, human authors who were inspired to declare God's revelation. So when we start talking about this, uh, the scripture says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is Jesus saying when he says this? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Who is he saying is the source of the word? God, right? And, and, and what kind of Bible did Jesus have? Hang on. Kind of. <laughs> well, no, he did. The Old Testament. The Old Testament. So, do what? Okay, at least the Pentateuch, but we had actually all 39. Um, so, remember... Sometimes it's referred to as the LXX or the Septuagint. Everyone ever heard of the Septuagint? It's the Greek version of the Old Testament. All right, and that was finished at least by 250 BC. What I mean by finished is it was canonized, that we, we can at least go back and see records of the complete list of all 39 books. All right. We'll talk more about that stuff a little bit later, but we know that at least Jesus had this to look at, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament, which includes the Pentateuch, which is the first five, okay, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, right, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all that good stuff, right, Numbers. So we have, we have that, all right, and uh, did Jesus have the Psalms? <laughs> Mm-hmm. David was before, right? And the Proverbs and all of that. So we see that Jesus Christ would refer back to the Law and the Prophets, which was often that they would say, we, you know, the Law and the Prophets. Jesus has said, they've spoken about me. They've testified to me. All right? So, but when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus is assuming that God is speaking to us. Do you get that? And we believe that that is through Scripture. Can he speak through the Spirit? Yes. But when he does, it will never be contra contradicting the Word of God, this, the, what is written. All right? So let's keep on with this thought. All right? So as we said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Some versions, if you have the KJV, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Keep in your mind that word inspiration is directly tied to breathed by God. God breathed. Remember, we, we kind of talked about that early on. God breathed and inspiration go hand in hand. If you're going to remember one thing from tonight, think of that. Inspiration and God breathed go hand in hand. Some translations will translate it inspiration of God, as the old KJV says. Others will say God breathed, but they mean the exact same thing because we believe it's coming from God himself is being revealed to us, okay? So, R.C. Sproul says, the word inspiration is a translation from the Greek word meaning God breathed. The word inspiration also calls attention to the process by which the Holy Spirit 
superintended the production of Scripture. Okay, so there's this mystery, and we'll try to talk about that a little bit more at the end here. All right, so let's take a look at uh, inspiration versus revelation. So revelation proper is the communication of facts previously unknown and unknowable by human intellect alone. What do we mean by that? Okay, so I want you to think about um, I want you to think about some some scenario where you could investigate it and find out on your own. Okay, uh, there's lots of scenarios that we can think about. Any any hobby you may be interested in, and you can pick up some books on it, and you can you can basically put put the pieces together, start to learn about it on your own. You don't need God to come and whisper into your ear how this works. You can you can figure it out. I'm sure every one of us can come up with examples of that. All right. That is not revelation. <laughs> so here I'm going to make a bold claim and hang out with me. All of this is inspired. Ready for the, ready for the choker? But not all of it is revelation. <laughs> You're like, what are you talking about? There's a difference between inspiration and revelation. All right? All of this is inspired by God, but there's parts of it that we didn't need God himself to tell us. Let me give you some examples. That feels weird. It feels weird to me too, but it's true. So hang on. Check this out. So the insufficiency of reason as a substitute for revelation. So this is from the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards. He says, it may be well uh, expected that a revelation of truth concerning an infinite being should be attended with mystery, right? So he's saying if we're, if we're looking at the infinite being, we're going to be confused about a couple of things, all right? And then he goes on, insomuch that if there had never been any revelation by which God had made known himself by his word to mankind, the most speculative persons would without doubt would have forever been exceedingly at a loss concerning the nature of the supreme being and first cause of the universe. John Edwards is trying to say, if God did not tell us about himself, it don't matter how creative you are, you would have never figured it out. doesn't matter how smart you are, you would have never figured it out, depending on your own reason. Okay? So there's a difference between inspiration and revelation. Revelation has specifically to do with God revealing something to us that we would never figure out. Okay, back to this. When we look at uh, creation... God is revealing that to us, but there's parts of creation that we can understand without the scriptures. Does that make sense? This is particular revelation. Are there things about nature that we can learn on our own without the scripture? How much math does the scripture teach us about? <laughs> yes, yeah, so some would say some. You're not going to find out about calculus in here. Not going to find out about trigonometry. You're not going to find out about thermodynamics in here. But is, is, is that truth? Does it still come from God? Yes. But there's certain elements of that where human intellect, extra the Bible, we can figure that out. But there's certain things that if God did not tell us, we would not get it. His nature being one of them. So let me run through a couple things in the Bible. All right, Inspiration versus revelation. I believe all of it is inspired, and I do believe that it is revelation, but I'm going to give you an example here. Okay, Creation. The creation narrative. Inspiration alone, or does it also include revelation? Would we have been able to figure it out? No, we need revelation. How this all happened, how it came to be, we need Genesis to understand that. We can understand that it exists, but the creation narrative, how it, how it happened, 
we'd be at a loss because were any of us there when it happened? No. <laughs> so we need revelation to tell us. We would never, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you would not be able to figure that out without God telling you how that happened. Okay, let me give you another example. The Exodus. Do I need revelation, God specifically telling me, or can I find that out some other way? I don't need revelation because I can do archaeological digs and those types of things without the Bible and figure out some people existed and left this and did that without the scriptures. Does that make sense? Is it inspired? Yes. We need that story. That's part of the narrative that God wants to give us. But remember when we were talking about... Yes? Well, if I was doing a, if I was doing a dig uh, in Egypt or, or wherever, yes, I would I could understand that something happened here. I wouldn't know all the details. I'm not arguing that. I wouldn't know that such and such under such and such circumstance that there was plagues and all of that. Maybe not, but I could figure out that a lot of people moved and once lived here and moved here, here and here, without without just looking at God telling me to, uh, about that, okay? Um, I can list kings. There's lots of kings in here. Can we go to extra-biblical sources and figure out which kings reigned in different times and different places? We can, can't we? And that's actually a good thing because we can do that type of study, which then gives us credibility to the, to the accuracy of the word. And I'm not just doing a circular reasoning. I'm saying, no, I can do archaeology, and it actually helps me understand that this is reliable, but archaeology isn't going to tell me about how I'm going to be saved. Archaeology is not going to tell me about the Trinity. Will it? No. So in that, there's absolutely revelation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, inspiration and revelation. If I don't have revelation, I'm not going to understand. I will never find that out on intellect alone. Doesn't matter how creative, how speculative, you're not going to figure that out unless God reveals it. Means of salvation, you're not going to figure it out unless it's revealed to you. So I'm arguing that the Bible has both revelation that we need and we would never learn without God, and there's little pieces here and there, some of the historical narrative, that we could put together without him telling us. But as the, the important stuff, we absolutely need him to tell us how that works. Who is he? Is he holy? And how in the world are we going to be saved? You aren't going to get that from nature alone. Even though it's general revelation, and it is all revelation from God, when we talk about revelation proper, it's the communication of facts previously unknown and unknowable by human knowledge or intellect alone. Okay, So keep that in mind. Revelation proper, we're talking about the stuff you can't figure out on your own. You need God come, to come tell you about it. Okay? All right, so let's move on. Chicago Statement, 1978. So there's this whole issue, even in the evangelical world, of whether or not we can trust the, the scriptures. Is it infallible? Is it reliable? So the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy uh, was produced at an international summit conference of evangelical leaders. It was held in, in uh, Chicago in 1978. Uh, and... Uh, this Congress was sponsored by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And so some of the signers, there's over 300 or nearly 300 noted evangelical scholars. Uh, some of these names you might recognize, right? So James Boyce, a lot of our commentaries, people see him all the time. Uh, Norman Geisler, uh, Gershner, uh, Henry, uh, lots and lots of them. Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer. A lot of big guys who we look up to who were involved in that, all right? So they got together in Chicago in 1978 and said, hey, 
There's some crazy stuff that's going on. Let's get together and let's address this issue of inerrancy. Because if we can't trust this as inerrant, as Christians, we're done. Why? Because we are a people of the book. Remember, we, we just made that distinction. Revelation proper has to do with the communication of things that were previously unknown and unknowable by human intellect alone. So if this is not reliable, if I can't trust it, and it has to do with salvation and who God is, what do I trust and what do I throw away? So this council got together. Highly recommend you looking it up. Some of these articles, though, uh, Chicago Statement. So here's Article 6. It says, We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. All right? And then we deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts or of some parts but not the whole. Do you get what they're saying? You can't pick and choose. You take it or leave it. All right? And so they're saying the scriptures and all its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration. When they say of the original, what are they getting at? Well, there was something before the Septuagint, but that's a good, that's a good, that's a good close one. The autographs. Everyone heard of that word, the autographs, and not just signing my name. Um, but we would actually say when Paul wrote Ephesians... There was a first letter, the one that went around, and the churches read it. That would have been the autograph. How many autographs do we have today? Zero. And they actually addressed that issue. But what the argument for inerrancy is, is the original autographs, the first letter, the first writing, was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Okay? And they deny that we can just pick and choose. And so... The, this uh, little short video is from uh, Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's got a book called The Five Views, but he speaks a little bit on the Chicago uh, statement. So listen real quick. In the book Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy, I contend for the view known as classical inerrancy. The definition of inerrancy that was ensconced in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy back in the late 1970s. The reason why I hold that is because I believe it's necessary to a full affirmation of biblical authority. Those who gathered and who constructed that document, creating a consensus for evangelicals at that time, did so over against denials of biblical inerrancy and a certain amount of confusion about what inerrancy was all about. So they sought to define it. And they defined it by saying that since God has given his revelation to us verbally and directly, it is absolutely consistent with his own character and with his own perfection. The second step then follows from that. Any backing off of the doctrine of inerrancy, any compromise on this, is inescapably, those are their words, a denial of some sort or a weakening of the full measure of biblical authority. I think if you go back, you understand they did exactly the right thing. I want to affirm that the way they defined inerrancy was absolutely defensible, right, and probably still about the quintessential way we could describe biblical inerrancy, even in terms of contemporary challenges. But there are some contemporary challenges, and that's why a book like this is important, because we need to come back and look at those definitions. And coming back, I want to contend that they got it right in the late 1970s, that the full definition of biblical inerrancy found in the Chicago Statement must be fully embraced by this generation of evangelicals, or we too will find ourselves weakening and compromising biblical authority. Awesome. So... Dr. Moeller is arguing that in the 70s, when these guys got together to write that, that they got it right. 
And uh, how many of you have heard of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy? Just a couple of us. Chris, Chris brought this up to me, threw it out. Um, I, I've, I've, heard of, I've heard of it, I've studied it, but I, I, it slipped my mind to introduce it to you. So I'm so grateful that he brought it to us because it is absolutely a critical thing for us to look at. Yes. No, zero. No, so the earliest manuscripts we have are within 25 years of the autographs. We don't have anything um, of the originals. There's nothing left. Yes? Oh, gosh. We will. We'll, we'll, look, we'll look at that with reliability. But yeah, so Homer's Iliad, there's all, there's all sorts of um, ancient, well-established uh, you know, books of antiquity that we would take and say, absolutely, that, that's, that's accurate, and they wrote that, and without question. Uh, I believe there's 700 copies of Homer's Iliad uh, that dates be, uh, you know, um, within, I think it's 300 years of the original, okay, uh, that they've got ancient copies of them. New Testament, we have over 5,000 Greek New Testament copies. Some of them, like I said, as close as 25 years from the original autographs. We'll get into the whole comparison with reliability, but if you can believe uh, Homer's Iliad and what he wrote, you, uh, we're, we have no reason to question uh, the New Testament documents and, and many of the other documents that we have. But the point is, and they actually address it, and we'll look at it here in just a second, that just because we, we don't have the autographs, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that we're in a worse position, okay? Because just what I said, do you think we have any original autographs of Homer's Iliad? Zero. <laughs> Zero. You can go on and look at all these other ancient books that we look at, and we, when you study the classics, and you don't have any of the original autographs either. So it's not a, hey, we're in a weak position here. That's just how it, that's just how it goes, right? Um, but what we'll talk about when we get to the reliability is the transmission process and the incredible accuracy that we see. Uh, you know, over the, the you know, nearly 2,000 years of, of scripture writing, um, dozens of authors, and we see this synergy. Well, now what we can look at is we have, I'm not going to get too deep into this because I don't, I don't have time to, um, but we can look at early, early documents. I'm going to write it over here in this little box. Early documents, okay, so uh, the earliest documents to today. So we've got late documents on this timeline heading towards today. The documents that we have now, all right, we can go back and compare them to the, to the earliest documents. And what we see is less than a 2% change over time in that change is actually like spelling and grammatical things. There is nothing to do with actual doctrine. So they're finding, and, and maybe this will be something um, McAfee could talk to, but they're finding pieces of old scripts uh, in like these mummy masks. I mean, they make kind of like a paper mache, and now they're peeling that stuff apart and finding old biblical texts in there. Those are really old. Well, they can take those little pieces and compare them to the pieces we have a letter later, 
So the transmission process copies of copies of copies, and we can see that there's very little change, and there's zero change as far as doctrine and essential teachings go. So we have great reason, if we're going to compare, to have um, faith and reliability of Scripture. But what, what Dr. Moeller is arguing is that we have to hold to a view of inerrancy today, and we need to understand what that argument is because there's a lot of people who are, who are fighting against that. And if we give up inerrancy, we give up our authority. Not our authority as we get to tell people what to do, our foundation for authority. The scripture that tells us that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God and the only way that we should be saved. You give up inerrancy, you give up Christianity. I believe that to be true, and that's what I believe Dr. Moeller is arguing for. So go home now. Uh, so we put some of the articles here, but there's um, 19 articles total. Um, they're very short, just like these here, but go through them and check those out. They're great. They have the affirmations and the denials. Uh, very useful. But let's keep going here. So what is inerrancy? Is the Bible truly without error? So this is something that I wrote. I said it becomes a great issue of subjectivity. How does one know when to take a passage of Scripture as true and when to render it in error? Is it simply that we take major doctrines as true as laid out in Scripture and leave room for the Bible to be errant in minor details? This is a little thing from a paper I wrote. Uh, so, so struggle with that. Can we just say, you know what, as far as the big stuff goes, we can trust the Bible. But maybe there's small errors. Good job. And we'll talk about that. Um, are there errors? Yes. We have to qualify these, and we'll, we'll look at them. Not errors like we're talking about right now, but we'll see some things. We'll see errors throughout the transmission process, and that's how we get 2% growth. There can be small spelling errors, grammatical errors. There can be those types of things, but there are no errors as far as what we would say, is this true and reliable? When I ask the question, is this true and reliable, there are no errors. And you can't accept, maybe there's a little error here and there, but on the major stuff, you got it right. You, you, it's, you take it or leave it. Buy the whole car or don't. <laughs> okay? So what we do, though, if we say, okay, yeah, maybe on the major issues, you got it right, but the, you know, the minor issues, uh, there's errors. Well, even if we take this position, while it seems to be an attempt to be intellectually honest while retaining major Christian doctrines, it is logically inconsistent when we consider that the scripture is divine revelation, if scripture is the product of divine revelation, then we ought to be able to take all of it as reliable and true. If we take any of it to be reliable and true, unless we're to be thrown into unmitigated skepticism and subjectivity. If this truly is the word of God, premise one, God breathed, it is reliable and true. If it's not reliable and true, dismiss premise one. It cannot be word of God. So we can't just take little pieces of it because then you're thrown into skepticism and subjectivity as Chris was opening with. All right, so let's keep going with this. I love this quote by J.I. Packer. He's one of the signers of uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and he says this. He says, God's word is affirmed to be infallible because God himself is infallible. The infallibility of scripture is simply the infallibility of God speaking. He's saying, based on God and who he is. All right, and then he moves on. He keeps going with it. He says, what scripture says is to be received as the infallible word of the infallible God and to assert biblical inerrancy and infallibility is just to confess faith in one, 
the divine origin of the Bible, and two, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. The value of these terms is that they conserve the principle of biblical authority for statements that are not absolutely true and reliable could not be absolutely authoritative. Do you get that? If it truly is inspired revelation of God, then it has to therefore be trustworthy and reliable. And if it is, then it has authority. Go backwards, get rid of inerrancy, get rid of inspiration, what also do you get rid of? The A word, authority, don't you? We're now just one of the many. I've read lots of the scriptures, and they're all in a roundabout way saying the same thing. They're not. But we have authority because we believe that it is based on God's character himself, who is infallible. All right. So the Chicago Statement, Article 10, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. Here we're back to that argument. What about the autographs? We don't have the autographs. So what are, what are they saying right here in this, in this article? What, is it, what are they saying? That's right. We can, we can uh, you know, some of what we say, reverse engineer it. Remember we said we can look back in time and find those earlier manuscripts, and we, we do that comparative analysis, and we can say with confidence, yep, same, same. Okay, so what he's saying, what they're saying there is that complete inerrancy has to do with the autographs and that every copy of it thereafter is that there is, as long as it's representing the original, and we can see that, all right? But then here's what they deny. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. They're saying it doesn't matter if we have the autographs or not. We can still have confidence in this, okay? So they go on, 11. We affirm that scripture having been given by divine inspiration is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be the same time infallible and inerrant in its assertions. It says infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. All right? Once again... Take it or leave it. Yes, sir. So we're establishing that transcribed from the earliest copies 25 years uh -huh. after the autographs, mm -hmm. that from there to now there's less than 2% yep. difference. Yep. What about the jump from the, the first 25 years? Yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, this is what we call the, four, uh, the five S's of orthodoxy. Um, and so we'll see summaries, singing, the sacraments. Uh, so there's uh, the scriptures that they did have, and then also the fifth S, which is snapshots from early church fathers, really early church fathers. So you see all sorts of cool stuff. Um, we'll get to that, because that is an issue we need to address. But it's not an issue no one else has to deal with. <laughs> Everyone else has to deal with that same, that exact same issue. And actually, we're in the best position. I'm not just saying it because I'm a Christian. We're in the best position to make an assertion that we have confidence in this, even though we have a 25-year gap from the autographs to the earliest extent, uh, you know, existent copy. So, okay, so we'll keep moving here. Who actually wrote the Bible? So, remember, authorship, God or man, tell me real quick. <laughs> Both. <laughs> I know, it feels weird, doesn't it? Both. It's God's revelation through inspiration 
that human authors are not just passive elements. They're not just vessels. They're not just, oh, God's just taking over control of my body, and I've got to write this. I don't want to, but he's making me. That's not, that's not what we're thinking. How does it work? We don't know, but we're going to argue both human authorship and divine authorship. The inspiration and revelation is from God. All right. So we have some interesting cases. What about the revelation of John? He's writing down what he saw, isn't he? Well, who's revealing it? What's revelation say? The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. All right. All right. So there is this, this process that God is working through men to give us our scripture. He doesn't say absent of human character and human uh, flavors and flares, and, and uh, that's, that's going to be there. He uses the experience Paul had to write his letters, didn't he? We're not going to lose that. Luke, uh, the historian, he's going to add his element to it, but it's still inspired by God. It's still revelation of God working through human agents. All right. So we affirm that inspiration was the work of, uh, in which, which God, by his spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely, largely a mystery to us. But then we deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. We're not thinking, whoa, I had this really crazy experience and I wrote some stuff down. That's, that's not what we're talking about with inspiration, right? Um, and that's where some people would say, yeah, I was, in this, I was enlightened. I was in this heightened awareness and not, not at all what we're talking about. We're not trying to explain it, but we're, we're also saying that it's not that. Okay? All right. So I'm going to end here. And actually, we're going to go a little bit over so you guys can leave. But I want you to hear a few minutes of RC. Uh, I think it's a really good little video. He's another signer of uh, the Chicago Statement. He's given some, some experience he's had with this. And uh, I like how animated he is. Um, and then I'm going to do, we'll do a quick summary I want, I want you to re look at these books. These are two books that uh, uh, we're recommending. The Scripture Cannot Be Broken, and that's a compilation of essays from different scholars for the 20th century who are written in the 20th century. On this area of, of, of uh, conversation, can, can the Scripture be trusted? What's the deal with inerrancy? And then Taking God at His Word, which is actually a much uh, lower shelf type of book, but it's still a very, very good book. Um, uh, Kevin DeYoung is a, is a great leader, and uh, both those books are really, I highly recommend. I'm going to give you the summary that way. If you have to leave during RC, that's okay. And Chris, if you want to say something, and then we'll, we'll play this. But here's, here's our summary for week one. Inspired by God, meaning its origin and authorship was guided by God through human agents, Contains revelation from God, meaning that it reveals insight to man that were once unknown and unknowable by human intellect alone. So the holiness of God, the means of salvation, right? And it is therefore trustworthy and true, inherent, excuse me, inerrant and infallible. Key words and ideas, inspiration, revelation, inerrancy, and infallibility, and then the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. So I highly recommend you guys go check that out. Um, I'm going to let RC play. And then uh, I'll let Chris jump up, back over. So I'm going to go back here to RC. I, I'm sure we would all agree. I think the older I get, the, what more and more impresses me is as I get to know the Bible better, the unity of the way in which it speaks. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's staggering. That I talking about the story I had of a conversation I had with a friend of mine in seminary about this question. Skip was the most brilliant kid I'd ever seen come out of 
the university. Genius. And he was an evangelical when he came into the seminary. And his confidence in the Bible was eroded as he sat under these higher critical professors day in and day out. And I was still advocating inerrancy. And he and I got into a discussion on the question in the hall one day, and within a few minutes there were 20 students standing around listening to this discussion. He was telling me, how can you, Orsi, uh, believe that the Bible is inerrant when the Bible's filled with contradictions? I said, what did you say? He said, it's filled with contradictions. I said, okay, let me give you a challenge. Because <clears throat> that's a pretty big book. 66 books. If it's filled with contradictions, it shouldn't be difficult to find a few. Let me give you this challenge. It's 1 o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to meet you here tomorrow at 1 o'clock. I want you to give me a list of 50 contradictions in the Bible. You ought to be able to find ease between now and 24 hours if this book is filled. He'd say, okay, I'll take that. So the next day, the guy comes back at 1 o'clock, and all the rest of the students are back there, too. <laughs> and he's telling me, well, he was up all night, he was bleary-eyed, you know, and he had his friends with him, they were looking through all these books. He had a list of 30. And I said, I asked you for 50. It's not as many in there as you thought, right? And I said, but 30, you know, that's enough to get rid of inerrancy, no question about that. I said, so let's look at them one at a time. And we looked at each passage of those 30, one after another where I was able to show him, because he was a student of philosophy, student of logic, to his satisfaction that not one of them violated the law of non-contradiction. At some point I had to actually use Venn diagrams to show that the propositions that were set forth, that he thought argued as contradictions, did not in fact violate the contradiction. You call them discrepancies or difficult passages to harmonize, but did not actually formally violate the law of non-contradiction. I went through every one of them, 30 of them. And frankly, I thought he could have brought some more difficult questions. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, when we were all done, I said, do you see that? And he said, oh, I said, do you see what you've just done in the last hour? I said, what? He said, you've bent over backwards. You've gone down to the nitty-gritty principles of logic. You've used Venn diagrams to escape these things. Why don't you just admit that the Bible's filled with contradiction. I swear to you, I just said my today. Let me ask you this. Let's go back to basic elementary mathematics. What's 30 times zero? <laughs> I said, why don't you stop talking that the Bible's filled with contradiction when you couldn't demonstrate one? You had 24 hours with a book that was filled with them, and you could not find one that actually violated the law of non-contradiction. And your experience is my experience. The more I study that book, the more overwhelmed I am by the detail agreement and harmony from all these different sources. Heavenliness of the matter, mm -hmm. consistency of its parts, all those things. You know. you think it was written by one guy. Yeah, you would. <laughs> you would think it was that. But I mean, this, uh, I, uh, another time I was speaking at a conference in the Northeast, and after I gave my address, which was on the authority description, guy comes up to me, he was one of my roommates in college. I hadn't seen him in 25 years, and I was delighted to see him and get caught up with him. So we got to go out for dinner, so we invited him to go out for dinner, and he goes down to dinner. First thing he says to me, he says, I have to tell you, he said, I don't believe that doctrine anymore. He did when we were college roommates, but he said, I, long ago, he went to a liberal seminary, and he gave up inerrancy and all the rest of it. He said, I, I don't believe that anymore. And I, 
And I said, well, how do you live your Christian life? I said, by what authority? He said, by the authority of Jesus. And I said, well, where do you find the authoritative teaching of Christ, if not in the scriptures? And he said, from the church. I said, which church? The Lutheran church, Episcopal church, Roman Catholic, he said, the Presbyterian church. I said, which Presbyterian church? The one in Philadelphia, the one in Boston, the one in uh, Chicago? He said, the General Assembly. When they speak as the whole body, I said, oh. Last year's General Assembly, this year's General Assembly. When last year they voted this particular issue down, and this year they this year they affirmed it. I said, which one was giving you the mind of Christ? I said, see what you're trying to do? You're trying to hold on to the Lordship of Jesus, but you've cut yourself off from any foundation. The apostolic authority of our Lord has been thrown out the window. That's why it's a free-for-all in the church today. Well, um, you know, mental sweat, I told you, right? So when you, when you uh, wrestle like this, you've got to go get some ice cream or something because uh, that's always, uh, it's always helpful. Uh, we're going to push us. We're going to push you, and we're going we're gonna to try to understand these things. And I want you to know as a believer, you've got to use your head. The Scripture says, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. We don't have to check our brain at the door to walk with Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of the accusations coming at us from a lost world. There's a reason for the hope that we have. There is real reason to trust the scriptures that we hold in our hands. And... Let's keep wrestling with this. Work on those terms. Now, I want to challenge you. These, um, the list of, uh, of key words and ideas. Uh, I want to challenge you. Go home. Write these out. Think about these things. Look up the Chicago, the 1978 Chicago um, view on inerrancy. There's a reason that in 1978 that came together. There's a reason in Baptist life that came together in 1978. And, and I'll tell you, I want to challenge you to go look at these things. Think about these terms. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we are grateful for the, the blessing of getting to think and wrestle. Bless this time and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, see you Sunday. <laughs>